Are you familiar with the term busking? You know, where uh, a musician, you know, maybe Geo goes down and because he's a, uh, uh, an accomplished uh, uh, musician, he's a guitar player, he goes down to the stadium, he sits outside the stadium, he plays, he puts a little box out there and he plays, hoping people will put money in his little box, if you will. Uh, if you go to a baseball game, you, you often see uh, a drummer out there um, playing after the game, trying to raise a little bit of money. Well, years ago, there's a, a guy by the name of Joshua Bell, and he emerged from the New York subway, and he positions himself beside a, beside a trash can against a wall. And by, by most measures, he was just a, an ordinary guy. He was not a script, a, a young Caucasian man, jeans, long sleeve T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. And from a case, he pulled out a, a small violin, and he opened the case, and he put it at his feet. And he threw in a couple dollars with some change in there, and it's kind of his seed money, and he began to play. And so for 45 minutes uh, in the D.C. Metro on uh, January 12th day, um, he played Mozart, and he played Schubert, and he played for oh, over uh, uh, as a thousand people would simply just walk by and most of the people hardly took notice of him and if they would have paid attention to him they would have recognized the man as a world-renowned violinist they also might have noted that the violin that he played with was a rare Stradivarius uh, uh, violin worth over three million dollars it was also part of a project arranged by the Washington Post and this is what they said. This is the nature of the experiment. An experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Just days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100 apiece. In the subway, Beryl garnered $32 from 27 people who stopped along the way to give him a donation. By the way, does anybody recognize the name Joshua Bell? A few people recognize the name of Joshua Bell. I would not have recognized the name of Joshua Bell. No one recognized this man for the talents of who he is and what he has done, the accomplishments that he has. What's interesting is, as we come to our text in the Gospel of Mark, the, the text that Terry read, and Jesus is going to go to his hometown. He's going to leave. He's going to go to his hometown. And you, you wonder, okay, Jesus returning home, how many people are going to recognize the hometown man? How many people are going to recognize this miracle man? Are they going to recognize him for who he is? I mean, when you look at where we're at in the Gospel of Mark, he's done some really powerful, incredible miracles. Are people going to be blown away? Are they going to be excited to see him? Or is he just going to be an ordinary guy? And that's kind of where we find ourselves, I believe, in a transition point in the Gospel of Mark. Mark Mark's an intelligent guy. He's writing for a purpose. He's writing to encourage people. He's writing to inform people. I wonder in Mark's mind as he gets to a transition point, he says, by the way, let's take a look at what unbelief looks like. Among the people who are closest to Jesus... Friends, family, community. Wow. You can be really close to Jesus and still be really far from him. Think of a guy by the name of Judas. Pretty close to Jesus, wasn't he? Pretty far from him, wasn't he? Let me read our text this morning that Gary read. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? That he even does miracles. 
Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them only in his own hometown, among his relatives in his own house as a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went out around teaching from village to village. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the way that you come to us. And Lord, with open Bibles and open hearts and open minds. Father, we ask that through the, through the community that we experience here, Lord, through the, the word of God, through the spirit of God, that you would teach us this morning. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's come to us in a personal, unique way. Father, we ask that we would come to you with humble hearts and that we would see you in a new way this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. So, so what we have in our text is, is Jesus is going back home. And I mean, he spent 30 years obviously growing up there. And we don't have a lot recorded about Jesus' childhood. I mean, we wish he did. You know, what was he like as a kid? You know, our minds kind of wander when we go to things like that. But in the gospel, we do get a, a little a bit of a snapshot of, of how he grew up and what people thought of him. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Luke says this, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and he grew in favor with, with, with God and men. In other words, the people of Nazareth, for 30 years, they saw Jesus grow up. You know, they saw that he grew in favor with people. I mean, the incarnate God touched people's lives. I mean, his family was there. He was there. There's no doubt he played with the little children for X amount of years. And there's no doubt he was involved in the community. His, his dad was named uh, Joseph, and he, and he was a carpenter. And, and he probably taught him carpentry, masonry skills. And so maybe the people can look around the city and go, well, you know what? Jesus worked on that building over there. Or he worked on that house over there. He, or he created this little gift here. He made this little, this little knickknack, if you will. He built that chair over there. You know, there's, there's a city called Sepphoris. And it's about four miles away from uh, the city of Nazareth. And Herod Antipas, at this particular point in time, he began a really big, large building project, building campaign, if you will. And four miles away, he built up the city. And so a lot of people think, well, maybe Joseph and maybe Jesus, maybe they went over there and they were part of this rebuilding process. Maybe that the hands of the carpenter was a part of the city of Sepphoris. So the text says that Jesus grew in, in this favor with men, if you will. But it also says that he grew in wisdom. So, so every year he would go with his family and they would go to the festivals. They would go to the festival of life. They would go to Passover. They would travel all of those miles from the city of Nazareth. And what they would do is they would go to the city of Jerusalem and they would worship at Passover. All of the pilgrims, all of the people gathering from all over in Palestine coming to, to worship and to celebrate the wonder and the beauty of, of their faith. They knew that they were Jewish people. They knew that God had chosen them. They, they knew their unique place, if you will, in the history of God's uh, uh, movement among them. And, and so we also know that at a particular point in time, they go to Jerusalem and they're coming back from the, the uh, Passover and, and they look around and they're, where's Jesus going? Where's he at? We can't find him. So eventually they, they head back to the city. They head back to the temple courts and they go back. He's been gone for three days. He's 12 years old. And notice what it says. The text says this, that the Jewish teachers, Jesus is there in the temple courts. Jesus is there with the Jewish teachers. And it says they were amazed at his understanding and his teaching and his learning. Why is that? Because they knew that there was something unique about who Jesus is. And, what, and, he, and they were blown away at his understanding of spiritual truth, if you will. So Jesus is growing in favor with them. He's growing in favor with the people. 
And last thing the text said is he's growing in favor with God. Every Sabbath they would gather. As a local, they would gather. Maybe Jesus was a part of the, of the worship services when he was a little kid. They would all gather together and they would be there and they would celebrate. They would celebrate in the, in the, in the, in the synagogue and they, they'd open the, their Torah and they would read the Torah and they would read together about their spiritual heritage. They'd learn about the prophet. They'd learn about their heritage, the, the patriarch. They, they'd learn about spiritual truth, if you will. They would sing together. They would celebrate together. They would celebrate all of these things. And they would celebrate the, the one day the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to set us free from the oppression of Rome. And we have all of these things, if you will, about Jesus' life growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. And one day at the age of 30, he just leaves. He packs up, leaves Nazareth, and he goes into the area of Galilee and he begins to teach and preach. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says this, after John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee. He's proclaiming the good news of God. The time is coming, said the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so that's what Jesus did. He left his hometown of Nazareth. He went to the area of the Sea of Galilee, Palestine area, and he began to teach and preach about the kingdom of God and how the, the, the kingdom of God was near them, that in the unique person of who Jesus is and was. And, and he went out and he began to teach and preach, but he also began to do these wonderful, mighty, powerful acts of God, miracles, if you will. And that's where we find ourselves in the Gospel of, of Mark. Recall what has happened so far. In, in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, he, he calms the storm. And remember what the people say, who is this? Who is this man? What, what is it about him, this mighty act that he, he speaks in the, in the storm is calmed? And as we, we keep going in the story, we see that Jesus has power, if you will, over nature, he has power over sickness. He has power even over death. What we're seeing from the Gospel of Mark is this, that he's saying Jesus is absolutely the Lord and the Lord of creation, the creator. He comes back and he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. What's interesting of Nazareth is it's not a very significant city. You know, it's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the Talmud. It's not in any of the Jewish writings. We have very little archaeological evidence of the city of, of Nazareth. One man said it was probably this size. It's probably this uh, a size of one square mile, maybe two to 500 people. That's not a very big city. That's a pretty small and insignificant city, if you will. And even the disciples didn't think it was a very good city. Remember the Gospel of John? Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, listen, we've, we found the guy. We found the Messiah. And it says this, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And you remember what Nathaniel said? Nazareth, are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Even the disciples recognize that Nazareth is a sleepy little town. There's nothing big and significant about it. What in the world good could come out of Nazareth? And so Jesus comes back to his hometown. Only this time it's a little bit different. He's got 12 guys behind him. Imagine 13 people, maybe more, coming into the city. And what's interesting is this. There's no crowds of people. Nobody's falling at the feet of Jesus, begging to be healed, begging to be helped. I mean, if you go back and look at the Gospel of Mark, one of the key points of Mark is the crowds of people following Jesus. He's always around people. When he lands on the, on the seashore, on the Sea of Galilee, people are standing there waiting for him. A man comes out of the crowd and he's begging and he comes down to his hometown and we don't see any of that. We don't see any of that. How are they going to treat this guy that they grew up with, who now is a preacher, preacher, but he's also this mighty, powerful miracle worker, if you will. And so 
he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he, he goes into worship with his family and then he's invited to teach. He's invited to speak. Remember the last time that he was in this synagogue in Luke chapter 4? Opens up the scroll from Isaiah, begins to say these words about him being the Messiah today. This scripture has been filled and he goes on to speak some words. And you remember what happened then? They tried to, they tried to run him off a cliff, tried to kill him in his own hometown. I wonder, if, I wonder if it's going to be different this time. I wonder if they're going to recognize Jesus for his why. Well, because he's been doing all of these miracles. He, we've seen his power. We've seen all of these wonderful things. All these crowds. Are, are they going to treat him a little bit differently, if you will? Will the reaction to Jesus be different? And it is a little bit different. Look at verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. This is beautiful. I, I wish that every Sunday when we left, someone could come up to me and go, how was the service? Oh, it was amazing. Amazing at the teaching. I mean, every missionary, if you're a school teacher, don't you want your kids to be amazed? Or do you want to hear them say, oh, why do we have to learn about math? I hate math. It says this, that they were amazed. It means this. It means they were so astonished, they were struck out of their senses. It has this idea of their minds going like this, and their jaws going, what in the world is this guy? That's what the word amazing means. Their jaws were dropped open. They cannot figure out Jesus. And so I think right here when we read the text, we're kind of wondering, well, what is the amazement at? What are they actually amazed at? Is this a good amazement? Or is this a... Bad amazement. You can be good amazed and you can be bad amazed. Think if you will. They can't figure out Jesus in the gospel of Mark at this particular point in time. Remember the disciples' reaction to the storm? They're not jumping up and down. They're not yelling and screaming, oh man, we're saved. What are they? They're amazed and they're fearful. And that's where they come up. Who is this man? All of a sudden, this, this guy, Jesus, who does mighty and powerful things, they have a different understanding of who he is. And they're struck with fear. They're struck with awe. Think about the, 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 the demoniac. Jesus heals him of all of these demons. And the man is sitting there in his right mind in front of all of the people. And how do the townspeople respond? They're so amazed and fearful of Jesus. What do they want him to do? They want him to leave. Leave. Uh, we can't reconcile who you are. We can't reconcile this, this miracle that's happened. We can't reconcile. We, we, don't, we can't comprehend it. We don't know what to do with it. And that's what's happening in our verse, in our text here. Look at verse 3, it says this, and, and they took offense at him. Now we understand what the amazement is all about. They're offended, they're scandalized, if you will. They're stumbling over the words of Jesus. Scandal, uh, the, the word um, offense has the uh, of a snare or a trap. The snare or the trap Jesus has been teaching in, that's, that his teaching has become a snare or a trap. And they're stumbling over him. We get our English word scandalous from this. Jesus' teaching was absolutely scandalous to them. So now we have an understanding of what they were amazed at. One man said this, they could not explain him, so they rejected him. And because they could not explain him or understand him, they refused to listen to him. And let me just say something. I think that's we see a lot of this nowadays. People can't understand Jesus. They can't understand his words. They see the words, they scratch their heads. We're not any different 2,000 years later. We kind of go, wow, did that guy really do miracles? Did, did he really do all of these things that he said he did? And we kind of scratch our heads and we wonder, well, is this true or not? 
We have this conflict going on inside of our, inside of our hearts about who the nature of Jesus. And by the way, he's at Nazareth. He's, he's back in his hometown. They watch these hometown boys coming home. And by the way, I think this, I think this includes even his family. Because if you go back and read Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says this. Even his own family thought he was what? Out of his senses. Who is this Jesus guy? What is he doing? And so I think this is where we come to our lesson. I think what we see here is four characteristics of unbelief. Four characteristics of, of, and from the text, at least, that people would stumble, if you will, over the nature and the character of Jesus and who he is. And now what I want to do is I just kind of want to walk through this in the time remaining. Number one, they stumbled over his authority. Look at verse two. They stumbled over his authority. Where did this man get these things? The teaching, the words. Jesus, what, what is the source of your authority? Who do you think you are? Why are you bringing all of these things, if you will? What is this authority that you claim to have, if you will? And by the way, this would be an absolutely critically important issue with the Jewish people who's sitting there. They love Yahweh. They love God. They know what they're supposed to do. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says this, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from what? The mouth of God. They would have that right in front of them. They would have the patience. They would have this understanding of who God is. Who's this Jesus, by the way? And here comes Jesus along with with his teaching and his preaching and his message, he brings a new teaching with authority. What? He's presuming to think and speak for God? That would be blasphemous. And we know that. That's one of the reasons why they tried to kill him. Be punishable by death. And they recognize this. Mark chapter 1 verse 12, it says this. 22 verse says this. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. You see what's happening? This guy's different from all the other teachers. This hometown guy comes back into the synagogue and all of a sudden he's teaching with authority, power, authority. He's doing these things. What in the world is wrong with him? What's, what's so different about him? He's not like the rabbis. Nothing like that. Mark chapter 1 verse 27, it says this, the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this new teaching with authority? He gives orders to the evil spirits and they obey him. They recognize that there's something unique and something different about who Jesus is, what he was. There's this power, there's this authority that emanates from his life. And they recognized it. So let me see if I can make an illustration here. So let's say that it's a warm 65, 70 uh, uh, degree temperature day. And I leave here and I get on my motorcycle and get on Highway 70 and I just start screaming out there. And I run through the the red light, uh, the light over here, and then I get on highway, and I run through that red light, and I get on the highway, and I'm just buzzing down the highway, and I'm going 85 miles an hour, and I'm just cruising down. I don't even have my helmet on. And all of a sudden, a cop comes up behind me, and a little light's flashing. What am I going to do? Hmm, I got a choice to make. Am I going to listen to his authority? Or am I just going to say, you know what? I got the big bike today. I think I can outrun him. And I just hammer on that gas and I'm gone. Or I pull over. I stop. Respect for the authority. He comes up to me and says, Sir, did you realize you went through the lights back there and you're going 85 miles an hour? You realize that? You understand that? Yeah, I understand all that kind of stuff. I just wasn't paying attention. I've abused and I've disregarded the authority that we know all about. 
But there's also something about that police officer. We know something about the police officer. The only thing that police officer can do is he can enforce the law, a law that's been given to him. He didn't create those laws. That law has been given to him to enforce that authority, if you will. In other words, he can't sit there and go, by the way, I just don't like you. And I think you're a jerk and you're an idiot for not wearing a helmet and you're going too fast. So what I'm going to do is not only am I going to write you a speeding ticket, but I'm going to write you a ticket for reckless driving. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to hammer you and I'm going to get you where you're going to have to pay a lot of money for this. He can't do that Why? because it can't be arbitrary. He does not have the authority to make up his own laws. And yet Jesus comes along. And he speaks with authority, and he speaks in an entirely different way. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is true. You have heard it said, but I'm going to give you an entirely different understanding of truth, if you will. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have in, uh, eternal life. But what do these scriptures do? They bear witness of me. Jesus did not come to do away and abolish the law and the prophets. What he came to do was to fulfill the law and the prophets, if you will. And he comes with this new teaching, this new authority that radically changes their life. And they have to figure out the message with what he's doing, the message with what he's doing in life. A little bit later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to be brought a man who's deaf and dumb. And they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus speaks these words. Deaf and dumb, he speaks these words. Be opened. And he can hear. And he can communicate. And the people say this about Jesus, about his authority, about his teaching. In Mark chapter 7, verse 37. People, what? They were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. They couldn't reconcile the tension in their mind and their heart about who this person of Jesus is and the authority and the new teaching given to him that wasn't taking away from their Old Testament law but came in fulfillment of this. Unless they come to an understanding of who Jesus is and his authority. And what he's come to do. And see, they missed who he was. The only explanation that we have for Jesus being able to say and do these kinds of things is if he was so intimately acquainted with his heavenly father that he came as God's servant, the Messiah, as he testified in Luke chapter 4. John chapter 1, verse 1, there is an absolutely beautiful verse that kind of describes Jesus' life. Notice what it says, John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. In other words, in the city of Nazareth, in the Sea of Galilee, all, he tabernacled among us. He lived among us. We have what? We have seen his glory. We know of the glory. We know the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. We know of the glory of God. We've seen, we've experienced the glory of God. We've seen that glory of the one and only who came from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. He came full of grace, full of truth. That is the unique person of Jesus, coming as a messenger of God, if you will, to bring this new kind of authority about how we should live our lives. And they couldn't get it. And, and I think we understand this. We stumble over the nature and the character of who Jesus is. Is he really God? Is he really God in the flesh? Is he really saying that? Thomas, in John chapter 14, Thomas stumbled over this very issue. Just, listen, Jesus, will you just show us the Father? Show us the Father and we'll believe. And remember what he said? Jesus said to Thomas, 
John chapter 14, verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or at least what? Believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Why does Jesus do these miracles? Because it is a testimony that he is God's servant, God's prophet, if you will. And if they will simply look at the miracles, nature, demons, sickness, even the authority to call people back from the dead, they would be able to maybe reconcile a little bit more about the authority of Jesus and what he's come to do in our lives. Should we listen to a guy who calls people back from the dead? I don't know about you. I think we should. I think wise people would do that. So unbelief, number one, begins with this idea of stumbling over the authority of, of Jesus. Second, they stumbled over his wisdom. Look at verse two. What is this wisdom that's been given to him? Let me, what is wisdom? Well, it's, it's, it's wisdom. It's being, it's being wise. Oh, yeah, that's good. Maybe we can look at it this way. So, so Laura and I, we had four children. And our, our first child comes along, Ashley comes along, and, you know, we, we want to raise her up the best way that we can. So there's, there's probably a lot of who I am and the way that I grew up and a lot of Laura, uh, who she is and the, and the way that she grew up. And we put all those things together and we, through our wisdom, we collectively try to raise Ashley. And, and we find out all the things that we're doing, it's not working. And so we, we, we try and figure it out. We get wisdom and we finally figure out how to, how to work with her. And then daughter number two comes along. And we're like, oh man, this is great. We got this figured out. We're just going to do the same thing we did with daughter number one. And then that doesn't work, right? You know what exactly what I'm talking about. And then by the time you get that figured out, daughter number three comes along. And now you've got two choices. And we're like, man, we're, we're pros. We got this stuff figured out. And daughter number three is off the charts. She's off the charts for six months. Six, I think it was six months. Laura walked around with this child from like six o'clock to 12 o'clock at night because the only thing that she did was bawl and she cried because she had colic. That's all she did. I mean, I, I remember putting her on a, on a, a moving dryer because she's shaking to try to get. I, I remember putting in a car and driving around in a car trying to get it. Wisdom is seeing the difficulties and the challenges of life and trying to reconcile all of them. It's not just that Jesus speaks with authority. You know, we understand the authority, but what about the complexities of life? What about the things that are a little bit difficult and challenging? What about the relationship with my wife? What about with, my, with, with finances? What, what about relationships at work? What about all those relational kinds of things? Jesus spoke to a lot of different issues. Jesus spoke a lot about money. By the way, he spoke a lot about hell. And it says here, it says, What's this wisdom that's been going, given to him? He preached anything but common stuff. He preached powerful stuff when you look at the totality of Jesus. But they couldn't get it. And so what Jesus does is this. In his wisdom, he gives them a proverb. Look at verse 4. Only in his own hometown, among his relatives, in his own house is a prophet without honor. Think about Jesus. Think about the ministry. Think about all the people following him falling at his feet, begging him for help. In his own hometown, he says, there's a lack of respect among his own relatives. They don't understand and believe him. And he is without honor and respect. And what does he do? He brings out a familiar proverb, right? That's what he does. In the wisdom of Jesus, he brings out something that they would be familiar with. We, we know what this, this way is. Familiarity brings contempt. 
You know, somehow, someway, the more that you get to know a person, the longer that you get to know a person, evidently what you do is you begin to see in their weaknesses and you get to see in their, maybe that they're not that kind of special person. Hmm, that's one way of looking at it. Or maybe it's just your perspective of that person that's really changed. Maybe that person really is. Or maybe you just have a skewed view of him. And Jesus comes and he speaks to them and they have very, very little respect for who Jesus is and what he said. And by the way, when you look at the totality again of Jesus' life in the gospel, he speaks in a wide variety of ways. We've already seen him speak in parables. We just see him give a, 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 a proverb. In, in the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus, he comes to us and he reveals himself in, in a powerful way. Sometimes he uses exaggeration. Sometimes he uses parable. Sometimes he uses similes. Sometimes he curses the victory. He uses a wide range of, of ways to teach and communicate what ultimately God's truth in a mighty, powerful way so the people would know, recognize, and understand who he is and that he's mighty and powerful and he's beautiful. And by the way, Jesus would also speak in such a way that it was divine when he would tell the people that one who among you is greater than Moses, they would be shocked. Nobody is bigger and mightier and powerful than Moses. No one is to the Jewish people. But if you look at his life and the things that he was able to do, you would see that he's different. And, and by the way, the things that Jesus said would be entirely inappropriate, entirely inappropriate forgiveness. By the way, your eternal destiny is determined by what you think, believe about me. All of those things would make no sense unless Jesus is who he says he is to us. And Jesus in his wisdom comes to us and he speaks in a wide range of ways, a mighty and powerful way, his supremacy. One man said this, Jesus was God spelling himself out in language humanity could understand. And he did that in a variety of ways. The wisdom of God comes. Matthew chapter 23. Let, let, let me just give you a couple of these here. Um, let, let me just walk through a couple of these little one-liner nuggets of Jesus. Matthew chapter 23 verse 24 says this. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What? What? What in the world? What in the world are you talking about? Gnats and camels? Well, if you go back and look at the context, the religious leaders, they were so caught up in their 10% tithe of mint, dill, and cumin. They were so wrapped up in their 10% their of, of herbs and spices that they were neglecting the weightier things of the law, justice and righteousness and forgiveness. And what does Jesus do? He confronts them. Jesus' authority, Jesus' wisdom confronts us in an entirely different way with life with Jesus, life with God. Mark chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know Jesus is speaking of his body and he's also giving them what? He's also telling them, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the cross and after three days, this body, this temple is gonna be raised up from the dead. He's telling them in advance what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. In God's eternal kingdom, power and pride and possessions and stuff are entirely different. It's not about climbing the ladder and being at the top. It's about your heart and humbly serving God and Jesus in an entirely different way. Let me just run through the rest of these real quick. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, do unto others that you would have them do to them. That's the golden rule. Matt, Mark chapter 8, what is good? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What does that mean? It means this, that life 
with Jesus in eternity is worth more than all, all, all of the cars and the houses and the money. That's the value of the human soul. Jesus' priorities in the way that he would teach and give us wisdom entirely different. And by the way, one that stings us is Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mystery. How radical that was. What? I'm not doing that. This is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No. By the way, adultery is committed not by a physical act. It's committed right here in the heart. Don't call your brother Raka. Raka means fool. That means you've committed murder, if you will, in your heart. See what Jesus does in his wisdom and his authority? He teaches all of these things and he turns them upside down. And he says, by the way, will you listen to me? Will you respond to me? And I can see how people would stumble over that. They stumble over his authority. They stumble over his wisdom. Notice what else they stumble over his acts. Verse 3, real quick, and then I'm, we're, we're getting close here. What's this wisdom that has been given him that even does miracles? They, they stumbled over all that they saw. I mean... They're not that far from Capernaum. They're not far from all the miracles. So Jesus, is, he's cast out demons. He's calmed a storm. He's healed a demoniac. He's healed a sick woman. He's raised this, this Jairus' daughter from the dead. And by the way, notice what it is. They acknowledge this, that he even does miracles. Not only is he wise, not only is he authority, not only is he all of this stuff, but he even does, it says, this mighty acts of God, something that only God can do. And they saw it. They experienced it. Now, maybe they didn't necessarily sit exactly where they're but there's no doubt that people are trickling in and out. There's no doubt they're experiencing the power of who Jesus is and what he's done. They stumbled over supernatural acts. Verse 3, they stumbled over his identity. Who is this guy? That's what they ask. Isn't this the carpenter? The carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? I mean, you can hear them. You can hear the scuttlebutt. Oh, by the way, what seminary did you go to? Do you have your MDiv? Oh, you only have, oh, you only have an undergraduate degree. Oh, that's, that's okay. Well, you can come in and we'll, just, we'll put you on the calendar every once in a while. You're not a rabbi. You didn't go to rabbi school. By the way, in all the years that we saw you here, we never saw you leave to go to Jerusalem and train with rabbis. Never saw that. And by the way, he says this. Notice it says, isn't this Mary's son? A, a lot of people believe that this is kind of derogatory to him about his... Uh, about Mary giving birth to him. He's an illegitimate kind of person. Uh, my understanding from my reading is that you would, you would uh, call a son after the father. He would be Joseph's father. Well, he's not that here. This is, this is Mary's son. So maybe in a derogatory kind of way, he's just Mary's son. He's a nobody. We don't know who this guy is. He's got brothers and sisters. There's nothing special about him. So they use these unflattering words about Jesus. So what do they stumble over? They stumble over his authority. They stumble over supernatural acts. They stumble over his words. They stumble over his wisdom. They stumble over all of those things. So what does that mean for us today? I don't know. Are you stumbling over some of these things? Do you stumble over some of these things? Listen, you can be involved in a church for a long time. Come in, punch in, punch out. Yeah, I don't know about that Jesus guy. He's a really nice guy. He's a prophet. I think he's a prophet. He spoke some really cool things. Yeah, but I don't know that I need to listen to everything that he says. I'm going to pick and choose what I'm going to do. I want to just give you a couple points of application real quickly and then we're done. Number one is this. Don't miss out on God's blessings. Don't miss out on God's blessing. Look at verses four through six. Only in his own town, among his own relatives, in his own house as a prophet without honor. They did not honor the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He could do, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. 
And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And Jesus went out teaching from village to village. There's no honor directed to Jesus. Remember the synagogue official? Even the synagogue official said, listen, just say the word and my servant will be healed. I, I have enough faith. The woman with the hemorrhage, she's going to crawl and she's going to climb her way. And she's going to, if I just get to Jesus, all I know is I, I, touch, his, I touch his robe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be healed of this, this thing. And, and you see no reaction from those closest to Jesus. It's, uh, it's just no big deal. There are two times in scripture where Jesus is amazed. The first one is when the centurion servant is, is sick. And he comes to Jesus and he wants him to heal him. And the, the centurion says, Jesus is going to go with the guy. And the centurion says, listen, you don't have to go. I'm a man under authority. I tell this guy to do this. I tell this guy to do this. Say your word and this, my servant, will be healed. And it says that Jesus marveled at his faith. And then we have in our text here, they marveled. Jesus marveled at what? Their lack of faith. I wonder if we have a lack of faith in people or families or ministries or churches. I mean, do we have that kind of lack of faith? Well, God's not going to do anything in that person's life. God's not going to do anything in that person's life. I wonder if we have a tendency to do that. Second point is this. People are going to be offended by your life. If you live under the authority of God's word, if you live under the authority of, of the wisdom of God, if you live under that authority, you will offend people. I guarantee you. They're not going to know it, and they're not going to understand it. If you hold to the authority of Jesus being the way, the truth, the life, your life, your life will cause people to stumble. You will offend people. In Mark chapter 13, it says this, all men will hate you because of me, and that is very, very true. People will hate us because of the message, because of the authority of Jesus' word. Number three is this. And I know this is simple, but I want you to just hear me. Trust Jesus. And what I mean is this. We know the authority that when Jesus speaks, we, we kind of fall in line under that authority. We, we know, I, I, I'm going to use this in a rule loosely, the rules and regulations, if you will, of our faith. We understand that. But what I would say is this. Trust Jesus for the words that says, I came that you may have life and you may have it to the full. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you. Don't neglect all those weightier sayings of Jesus that invite us to come, throw ourselves at him, and ask for mercy and grace because of who he is and what he's done. Don't allow your faith to be so simplistic that it forgets the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and how he's come to free us of our sin. And the last thing I want to give you is this. Don't give up on people. If you find them in this camp of unbelief, don't give up on them. Why? Because Jesus' family is right there with him. They think he's out of his mind. They think he's lost his senses. And eventually his family is going to come around. It's going to take something mighty and powerful. What's it going to take? The resurrection of Jesus. It's going to take somebody coming back from the dead. And when they hear, see Jesus coming back from the dead, their lives are radically different. And their lives are changed because of who Jesus is and what he's done. I don't know where you're at, you know, maybe you've been around church for a while and you're kind of coasting in and out and don't miss out on the blessings of Jesus. Don't neglect who he is and what he's done and what he's come to do to free us from our sin. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. Father, I thank you for each person who's here 
who's embraced Jesus through faith. Father, we know that we are, we are saved not from our works, not by our works, but we are saved by simply putting our faith and trust in Jesus, the mighty and powerful one who went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Father, thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you for the way that we're changed. Thank you for the way that you change our lives. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us. But this Jesus went to the cross and laid down himself for us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray.